but get the book. It's called Proof. Let me, let me get the good, complete title of the book that we're recommending because I, I really highly recommend this book. Get it, read it. Uh, in fact, after I read it, I said, why am I teaching this? Why don't we just make people read the book? Uh, well, I can't, I'll find it. It's, it's proof, and it's by two authors, Montgomery and Jones, that, that I remember that much. The, the, the lengthy title I'll come to in my notes here, and I'll give it to you when we get to it. Where can I possibly start? Go ahead, start the tape. Where can I possibly start? This is probably, well, it was one of the more difficult questions I had to answer. And that question came to teach this class. And that question came right after, what in the world did I get myself in for? <laughs> was this really my idea? Anyway, this subject was taught back in 2012 in School of the Word uh, as the doctrines of grace. Uh, now, I could blame how I got myself into this, I think he's here, on Steve Cowley. Uh, there you go. Uh, I was sharing, we were sharing a meal with Steve and Sissy a while ago, and Steve asked a simple question, whether the church might consider a study on Reformed theology. And that question resonated with something that had been in my mind, so I brought it to the elders, and so I could blame it on Steve, how I got myself into this. Uh, Certainly Steve's one of the means that this came about. But I believe enough about the sovereignty of God to know that blaming this on Steve or on the elders or even my own thought process would be a mistake. God wanted me to dig back into and dig more deeply into some truths about himself that are part of his amazing self-revelation that we know as the Bible. God also wanted you to be here as well. And he wants you to be provoked by something the Holy Spirit will say to you to be affected anew by the amazing grace of God that stooped to save anyone, particularly me or you. And that brings me back to the question I started with. Where do I start? Oh, before I get to that, one more good question. Why me? There are many teachers in this church far more qualified to teach these truths than I am. I knew that was true when I brought up the possibility. Believe me, I know that far more clearly and profoundly now than I did then, but I knew that even then. Uh, And it was almost an act of selfishness because I know when I study to teach, God blesses me far more than he blesses anyone that might listen to what I have to say. I won't dwell there, but I know it's true. There are far more qualified teachers for these truths here. One more disclaimer. Even though we're going to look at... One as- we're just going to look at one aspect of Reformed theology that's related to issues of salvation. And the technical term for that is called... Yeah, I know the, the first chapter of the book we recommend... How many, how, many don't how many didn't get a copy of the first chapter of the book? It was out there. There's several, so... Okay, he'll bring them and pass them out. Don't be reading while I'm talking. Okay, don't be reading... <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the, the, the study of salvation is also known, the technical term, I guess, is soteriology. And we're only, but we'll only soteriology. I don't know. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. But my hope is we're just going to scratch the surface even on that subject. My hope is that our surface scratching will be used by God to motivate more study, more in-depth study. And if that happens which I hope, I pray it will. That's my main prayer. If that happens, you will be richly rewarded. God will be honored and glorified as his people want more and more to learn of him, to study him, and to come to know him. What's the standard for our study? And here's where, here's where we'll start. Before we start, that was just introduction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that you are dealing in me with a very weak vessel. Lord, so I need, and everyone who listens here need to have the power of your Holy Spirit to open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your truths. And Lord, we're dependent totally on that. We ask it in the name of your Son.
Jesus. Amen. In your notes, I think it's the first quote that I have in your notes. I'm going to read this, and then there's a little blank for you to fill in at the end. And some of you may have done your homework, may know the answer. I don't know. We'll see. Here's where we'll start. The Bible is the only essential and infallible record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. It leads us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Being given by God, the scriptures are both fully and verbally inspired by God. Therefore, as originally given, the Bible is free of error in all it teaches. Each book is to be interpreted according to its context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through it in living power. All believers are exhorted to study the scriptures and diligently apply them to their lives. The scriptures are the authoritative and normative rule and guide of all Christian life, practice, and doctrine. They are totally sufficient and must not be added to, superseded, or changed by later tradition, extra-biblical revelation, or worldly wisdom. Every doctrinal formulation, whether of creed, confession, or theology, must be put to the test of the full counsel of God in Holy Scripture. Now, can anyone here tell me what I was reading from? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. That many of you? I'm surprised. I'll take the one in the back. Is that our church covenant? Yes, it is. That was from Article 3 of Lakeview Christian Center's Constitution and Bylaws, our statement of faith. And if you're a member of this church, you agreed to that statement of a truth that we hold to be fundamental. Is there a standard for our study? What is first? Yes, it's that standard. Whatever I say, whatever I read from that someone else has said, the ultimate reference point, the standard by which anything here taught must be measured is God's word, God's revelation of himself. So this is where we must start. Okay, and I've, I pose a series of questions. These are called, what do you call these kind of questions? I mean, you're not supposed to answer them, no. Rhetorical questions, thank you. What is Reformed theology, first of all? It's theology. That's simple enough. There's a stark difference between religion and theology. There's a story, it just reminded me of a story that someone came up with going into a, an old school that was a, you, if I said the name, you'd know it well one of the most renowned universities that used to be one of the premier schools for studying the Word of God. And uh, they had, the title on the door had changed. He said, what is this? Now it was, the, it was a college of religion. And this, this uh, godly man quizzed professors there about it. And they had changed it. It used to be the School of Theology simply stated the difference between theology and, in, and uh, religion is the, is the difference between God and man. The subject matter of theology is God. The subject matter of religion is man. We started with the standard of our study, Scripture, because that's the primary way to learn about God. Because Scripture is, most of all, an all-sufficient, divine self-revelation self-disclosure. So first of all, Reformed theology is theology, the study of God, but it must include God's revelation about man. The information in the Bible is not the result of some human investigation, but of supernatural revelation. Scripture comes to us from the mind of God through the mediation of Holy Spirit-inspired writers. Are there valid secondary sources? Yes. There are other ways to study God that are valid, and we're going to use some of them this morning. Um, One way is to look at what people gifted as teachers of God's revelation have taught us about God. These are God's gifts to the church. They can range from Augustine in the 5th century through Luther, Calvin, Edward, Spurgeon, Spruill, many others, up to and including John Piper in the 21st century, up to and including the writers of the book that we're recommending. We will be looking at what some of these teachers have to tell us, but remember, they are secondary. And what they say must be subordinate to what God tells us about himself. 
all of these great men that I've mentioned and the ones we will quote from in this study would agree with that proposition that everything they have to say must be subordinate to what God has had to say. The main value of these teachers is to help us understand what God tells us about himself in Scripture. But our heart with David and with the Apostle Paul should be to know God, to know Christ, to study and know all we can know about our Creator, our Savior, our Sustainer. The label Reformed Theology tells us something, that there have been studies of God that needed Reformation. I'm going to make two declarative statements that I I won't have time this morning to completely unpack. But first, Reformed theology is systematic theology. Proper systematic theology does not try to impose a particular philosophy on the Bible, but instead trusts that what we read in the Bible is true. Systematic theology has as its goal to learn and discern the way Scripture relates to Scripture. Since the Bible is the Word of God or the voice of God, we must believe that it's not filled with internal conflict or confusion. The message of Scripture is from God to us, and so we believe it is consistent within the text. God is not the author of confusion. Unfortunately, the same can't be said of man. As a result, we must be, we must be students of the Word of God, not just our pet passages, not just a little card or verse from a promise box. You remember those? Anybody remember those? But the whole Word with the Holy Spirit's help. And that's why Summer Bible Jam this year was so important. We learned that from beginning to end, from first to last, God's big picture has been consistently pointing man to the unchangeable truths about who he is, who we are, and that his plan is unchanging and un- unchanged and unchanging. The second declarative statement I want to make it about Reformed theology is that it's God-centered rather than man-centered. You're going to hear me repeat a simple sentence several times during this study, and uh, It probably won't mean anything to you. I hope it comes to mean something to you as it has to me. It's a simple statement. God is really God. Maybe that doesn't mean to you what it means to me, but that simple statement has answered many of my questions about the subject matter that we have before us. A man-centered study about God is religion. It comes with man's agenda. What is in it for man? A God-centered study of God is theology, and it asks first, what did God have in mind? This is really about him, not me. Uh, R.C. Sproul, in his book, which another book that I strongly recommend, What is Reformed Theology?, makes this statement. Reformed theology applies the doctrine of God relentlessly to all other doctrines, making it the chief control feature in all theology. Now, Almost all Christians of all persuasions will agree that God is sovereign. You know, oh yes, God's sovereign. You start digging around under that and you find out they don't really think that. You run into statements like God's sovereignty is limited by man's free will. We're going to talk a lot about free will and what that means, but not too much, a little bit today. Reformed theology agrees, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, that there is a certain freedom that has been assigned to us by the Creator, but you have to define your terms or you won't understand it at all. Reformed theology insists that our freedom is always and everywhere limited by God's sovereignty. God is really God. I came across a quote. This isn't in your notes because the notes, I came across this after I did the notes earlier this week from uh, C.S. Lewis, makes an important point. In a question and answer period after one of his lectures, C.S. Lewis was asked, which of the world's religions gives its followers the greatest happiness? Now, John Piper would have his answer to that. I won't go to that right now. But Lewis paused when the question was asked, and then he said this, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. What will make you happy? 
while it lasts. Now, that's, there's all kind of scripture that you could quote for that. The religion of worshiping oneself is best. Each word in Lewis' response was selected carefully. When happiness is, def- is identified as the most important thing and religion is its subject, okay, it's really ourselves we seek. By removing God in favor of religion at the center, we tend to think naturally that we are wholly free to pursue happiness. That's in our constant, no, it's in our Declaration of Independence. Meaning free to pursue what we please. That freedom, I hope to convince you in the weeks to come, is not freedom at all. We'll begin to see that next week. Next question, does Reformed theology imply a history? Yes. And I'm going to, I hope, I hope they have some history students here, but whether that you need to become a history student to some extent. In fact, it's interesting when you read these books that we're recommending, the proof book, any of these books, you're going to find history. They, now they sneak it in. They, I'm going to probably dwell on it more than they do, but I hope you remember some of these important points in history. Because the history of Reformed theology is primarily the history of the Reformation that took place in the 16th century, the century of Martin Luther and John Calvin. But it didn't start there. It started much earlier. And the Reformation was not a revolution. It was a reformation. The sovereign God preserved what was right and true about himself before, during, and after the Reformation. The Reformation reformed many things, but I'm going to focus on the Reformation um, as it relates to what the Bible reveals about God's plan of salvation. We need to understand, first of all, that God's plan of salvation is revealed in Scripture. And as it's revealed in Scripture, it contradicts man's natural wisdom and understanding. It's in direct opposition to man's natural bent, his leaning. In Matthew 11, 25 and 26, Jesus prayed, and you have to catch this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's our human nature to rely first on our own wisdom and understanding rather than God's revealed truth. And that's true even about salvation. That human inclination continues today, not only outside the church, but also within the church. The leaning to our own understanding often begins, as it did with the Pharisees in Jesus' time, with tradition. Oh, that ugly word, tradition. Now, before I get, have too many amends from some of you who have been delivered from certain traditions of men, let me quickly say that all tradition is not bad. Jesus did rebuke the Pharisees who elevated rabbinic tradition above God's revelation of himself in the Bible. But tradition in the New Testament is not always a dirty word. Paul commended the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.2 with these words, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul also admonished the believers at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. One of my favorite writers Put, put it this way in a recent article entitled The Pendulum and the Cross. And it's a long quote. I maybe shouldn't take the time to do it, read it. But I, I, basically her point, and I will skip through this. You can read it at your leisure. But she's talking about the tendency we have to love the new, to love the contemporary, and discard things that are old. And being an old person, I resent that. <laughs> And she says that, in the quote, she says, the risk of seeing the church's identity more in terms of today's form that its enduring essence seems both high and hazardous. And she goes on to say, in the midst of a culture consumed with the new, the contemporary, and the progressive, the church roots its very identity in this man who lived 2,000 years ago. 
one who proclaimed the reign of God on earth here and now, but whose future return he also asked, we look to expectantly. We can't discard history. That's high and hazardous. It's our duty as Christians, however, to always be reforming. And personally, and in our understanding. And this reformation it doesn't, is not a revolution, it's a reformation. Spruill wrote this in, in the book that I've mentioned before. Every Christian community creates its own subculture, and we have one here, of customs and traditions. Such traditions are often extremely difficult to overcome or abandon, yet it remains our task in every generation to examine critically our own traditions to ensure they are consistent with the apostolic or the biblical tradition. Does God protect the truth? Do you think God has the power as sovereign God to protect the truth about salvation through the years and through man's leaning the other way? Of course he does. We stand on the shoulders of giants of the faith, and it's pure arrogance for us to ignore that history. We don't need to understand all the details of church history, but we do need to understand that God has enabled giants among the gifts of teachers to the church. We ignore those, what those giants had to say and the truth they had to impart to our shame. The risk of doing so is high and hazardous indeed. There were many events in church history that provided demonstration of God's sovereign grace to protect and preserve his truths about salvation. Those events were God-inspired using the means of God's gifts of teachers. No doubt many of those events and the players in the events are lost to the historical record. But this morning, I want us to be informed about four of those events and the people, a little bit about the people involved. And I I want us to see God's grace at work in the history of these last days. We learned the last days from teaching from the pulpit over the last few weeks. Those last days extended from the cross, and we're still in them. We need to see that God has preserved for his church his truth about his salvation. And uh, there are four monuments or markers of grace and our brothers who were instruments of that grace. Uh, we, I debated a lot about the title. I had a list of possible titles for this study that was about this long. And then, of course, Evan came, you know, and he, I met with him. One, and, and he listened. Those are really good. I really like all those. Have you thought about grace that saves from beginning to end? Yeah, that's better than anything I thought of. So, <laughs> so that's our... That's our That's the title of our study. Grace that saves from beginning to end. The first monument I want us to remember is Augustine of Hippo. Now, a lot of you think Augustine, St. Augustine High School, the marching band, yeah. (laughs) But St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, and his biography is amazing to read, but we're not going to spend time with that. But his fight against something called Pelagianism, and it's important that we learn what Pelagianism is because it still exists today. It was declared to be a heresy back then, but it still exists today, I think, as you'll see. Augustine lived from 354 AD to 430 AD, and his life story is worth knowing. We don't have time to go into it, but suffice it to say, God gave Augustine as a gift to the church to be involved in an early battle for truth about God's salvation, a battle that still rages today. An English monk named Pelagius, who lived from 360 A.D. to 418 A.D., promoted a lie that, has been pe- that had been peddled by Satan from Adam's fall until today. Pelagius denied the truth about the full effects of Adam's sin as it's revealed in Scripture. God's revealed truth is that he, Adam, and with him mankind ever after would surely die both physically and spiritually, if Adam disobeyed God's command. Pelagius argued that Adam's sin only introduced physical death, not spiritual death, and that Adam's sin did not affect the people who came after him in any spiritual sense. R.C. Sproul described Pelagius' opposition to Augustine as follows. And you have this quote in your notes. The controversy began when the British monk Pelagius opposed at Rome... Augustine's famous prayer, 
grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Now, boy, I don't know if that, you have to think about that a little bit. Grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Do you see there Augustine's prayer contained an absolute dependence on God? You want certain things, God, you must grant them. I can't do them. I'm helpless to do those things. Grant what thou commandest. That's a prayer all of us should be praying all the time. Lord, grant to me what you want me to do. Give me the power. Give me the ability. Pelagius recoiled in horror at the idea that a divine gift, grace, is necessary to perform what God commands. For Pelagius and his followers, responsibility always implies ability. Boy, you're going to hear that if you start talking to some of your Christian friends, and they may be Christian friends. They may be Christian friends who misunderstand God. Pelagius and his, for, for them, responsibility, responsibility always implies ability. If man has the moral responsibility to obey the law of God, he must also have the moral ability to do it in himself. Do you understand that? That's a lie. That's not what Scripture teaches. Pelagius taught that self-acquired virtue is the supreme good, and it's always followed by reward. He taught that religion and morality lie in the sphere of the free will and that virtue and good can be attained at any time by man's own effort. For Pelagius and his followers, responsibility always implies ability. If a man has a moral responsibility to obey God's law, he must also have the moral ability to do it. That's the idea that we can hear repeated over and over again in today's less sophisticated expression might come something like this, people are basically good, don't you know? At their core, people are really good. Anybody hear that? We're tempted to believe that. I'm tempted to believe that lie. Augustine rose up and declared those thoughts to be sheer heresy and contrary to the clear counsel of Scripture, and he persuaded the church to convene what's known as a synod, a council at Carthage in the year 418, And the result of that council was to correctly declare Pelagius to be a heretic and his teaching to be heresy. You would think that'd be the end of the air. I mean, they had a big council. They decided, right? No, that's wrong. That philosophy that people are essentially at their core good, that heresy still persists. Let me just share this for you Saints fans. Let me find, huh? No, that's not, that's not the idea. I got this out of the news this week. And it just struck me, and it kept resonating in my head. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a horrible story. But I'll just read from one of the news clippings. U.S. District Judge Jane Trish Malazzo sentenced Darren Sharper on Thursday, telling him, listen to this, she couldn't understand how he did what he did since he was college-educated and obviously had grown up in one of the most loving households. She couldn't understand how he did what he did. I understand. Do you hear in that statement this puzzlement? Wait, man is essentially good. And Okay, well, if you had a bad background and you grew up poor and you'd had a single mother or you didn't even know who your parents were, well, maybe you would have done the... No, nothing to do with that. It's what's inside of man. Man is not essentially good. And the next manifestation of that pride-filled lie only took about 100 years to develop to the point that other giants of the faith rose up once more to address what has been called semi-Pelagianism. Now, they, they would agree on the surface, okay, yes, man, whereas Pelagius said, original sin, ah, forget about that. It didn't have any effect on you. Semi-Pelagian, oh, no, yeah, we agree. Original sin has an effect. And on July 3rd, 529 A.D., a church council took place at Orange. I guess it probably, I'm not a, I don't speak French. Orange, maybe, I don't know, something like that. It was in what is now Provence, <laughs> France, and the occasion, this was the occasion of the dedication of a church. It was attended by 14 bishops. It was convened by one of the early popes. 
Pope Felix, and the question posed at this council was whether this moderate form of Pelagianism could be affirmed or if the doctrines of Augustine were to be affirmed. The controversy raised the degree to which a human being is responsible for bringing about his or her own salvation and the role of the grace and power of God to bring about salvation. In my shorthand, the question became, is God really God? Again, it answers a lot of my questions. I don't know if it does yours. Or can man have something to do with saving himself? The Council of Orange dealt with the semi-Pelagian doctrine that the human race, although fallen and possessed of a sinful nature, is still good enough to be able to lay hold of the grace of God through an act of unredeemed human will. Please notice the thread of so-called free will that runs through this debate. And from the Council of Orange came 25 canons or declarations of doctrine. That's what a canon was and is. We won't go through the 25. I've read them. And each, it's, it really is an amazing read. And if you go online and find them, find an English translation, you'll be blessed. Because each canon, each statement of doctrine was supported directly from multiple citations to Scripture. Those declarations proved once again that God's self-revelation is sufficient to overcome false doctrines. The Council of Orange approved the following conclusion. I'm a, oh, this is, I can't finish this. <laughs> Overtime. <laughs> the Council of Orange approved the conclusion, and I quote some of the conclusion that they came to after the 25 canons are laid out page after page after page. I put the quote of, of some of their conclusions, and I'm just going to read some of it. The sin of the first man has so impaired and weakened free will that no one thereafter can either love God as he ought or believe in God or do good for God's sake unless the grace of divine mercy has preceded him. And they go on to go into Hebrews 11, and they say, And we know and also believe that even after the coming of our Lord, this grace is not to be found in the free will of all who desire to be baptized, but is bestowed by the kindness of Christ. And, and he, then they quote from Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And again, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 1.28. Uh, and as the apostle says of himself, I'm reading from the conclusions that they reached. I have obtained mercy to be faithful. Listen to that. I have obtained mercy to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 7.25. He did not say, because I was faithful, but to be faithful. I was granted grace to be faithful. And again, what have you that you did not deceive? And again, every receive. And again, every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And again, no one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven, John 3, 27. And you, you can go on down. And he, they, they can, going down to their, the end of their conclusions, we also believe and confess to our benefit that in every good work, it is not we who take the initiative and then assisted through the mercy of God, but God himself first inspires in us both faith in him and love for him without any previous good works of our own that deserve reward. These were godly giants. We stand on their shoulders. And I, I hope that you, and if you went and read the whole, all the canons of the Lord, you'd find scripture after scripture after scripture. The 25 canons reference far more scripture than that. And these were people of the word who were captured primarily not by human philosophies, but by the voice of God, contrary to human philosophies. That was 529, but the battle for faith about God's salvation wasn't over. Go, you can leap forward about a thousand years. Luther, Erasmus, and the Diet of Worms. Now, the Diet of Worms is not what it sounds like. No one was eating worms. An imperial diet was a formal, deliberative assembly of the whole Holy Roman Empire. Worms was a city in Germany where they had that assembly. 
the authorities, starting at the top of the Roman Catholic Church, were out to get an upstart troublemaker, Martin Luther, who dared to claim that salvation was by grace alone and that the Roman Catholic system of indulgences wouldn't result in the forgiveness of sins at all. That was only one of the many heresies, so-called heresies, of which Martin Luther was accused. And finally, the Pope persuaded the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, to call Luther to account, to put him on trial for his many written heresies. And it's a wonderful story how they piled up all his books and said, do you stand by all of these truths and, or what you've written? And it's, a, it's an interesting story. We don't have time to deal with all of the accusations against Luther. But the result was a formal trial at Worms in April of 1521. And an edict was issued after they then went to deliberate. Luther had the good sense and the Holy Spirit and, uh, uh, prompted him, get on a horse and get away which was a good thing. By God's grace, he was able to escape to friendly territory before the edict was issued and he lived that he was a heretic and he should be condemned to death and lived to see a new church birth that was extremely influential at the beginnings of what we call the Reformation. He had many enemies, high-powered enemies. God preserved him. In a few minutes, we're going to discuss one of those enemies, a pastor professor named Erasmus who lived... Uh, from 1460 to 1536. But before we do that, I want to chase a rabbit to get a picture, a snapshot of God's Holy Spirit illumination of Scripture to Luther that you may find humorous. This epiphany took place in about, best anybody can tell, about 1519. Luther had been a monk for years without having fully experienced the saving, grace-filled power of God in his life. I want to quote from one of the books we're going to recommend from this is in proof the t subtitle of the book, Proof, is Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. Speaking of Luther's experience, the authors write this. At one point, the monk, Luther, found himself meditating on a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. It was through this text that God transformed Martin Luther's despair into freedom and joy. Luther, the monk, had read the letters of Paul many times, but this time he glimpsed a truth that he'd never noticed before. Martin Luther later claimed that this epiphany occurred while he was, quote, on the toilet. And toilet humor was common for Martin. His Christmas sermon once included the story of a monk who said his prayers on the commode. Satan accused the monk of being sacrilegious for praying on the commode. The monk simply replied, I am purging my bowels while worshiping. You can have what goes down while God get what goes up. <laughs> In this instance, Luther most likely meant the phrase, I don't know if this is true or not, <laughs> to be taken metaphorically on the toilet was 16th century slang that meant down in the dumps, feeling vulnerable, helpless, and in despair. Regardless, Martin Luther was broken by these words from the Apostle Paul that he had studied and read dozens of times. He knew the word. But these words just jumped off the page for the first time for him. And he was very learned in the language of the Bible, the original text. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And when he read this text, he saw for the first time that God's righteousness includes not only his righteous anger and hatred of sin, which Martin Luther knew well. He felt condemned by it. God was righteous. He knew that. He was perfectly holy. He knew that. But he saw for the first time that God was willing to give the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to undeserving sinners. And that it wasn't based on human deed or desire. It was a one-way work of God that comes by grace through faith from first to last. This message of undeserved mercy was the good news that Martin Luther had missed in his many, many decades or years in the monasteries. He saw himself, he later described the Holy Spirit given illumination that he saw from Scripture this way. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Now, all of that came before his trial at Worms. I'm out of time. Oh.
Professor Erasmus wrote what he called a diatribe, a response, a, a sarcastic response to Luther's views on the issue of free will. He wrote it in 1524. And Erasmus essentially made fun of Luther's views and argued that all humans possessed free will and that the doctrine of predestination wasn't in accord with the teachings contained in the Bible. He was a seminary professor after all. He argued that the doctrines of repentance, baptism, and conversion depended on the existence of free will. Does this sound familiar? Here we see again the remnants of semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism raise its head again. This happens over and over again in these last days, up to it including today. And Luther responded in 1525 the next year with his classic book, The Bondage of the Will. Luther wrote stacks of books. This is the only, he said the rest of them you can burn. This is the only one that shouldn't be burned. The Bondage of the Will. And he didn't respond to Erasmus with human philosophy, the way Erasmus had framed his arguments, but from Scripture. He maintained that sin incapac incapacitates human beings from working out their own salvation without the regenerating intervention of God's amazing grace administered by the Holy Spirit. In his response to Erasmus, Luther proved from Scripture that human beings are dead in trespasses and sins, completely incapable of bringing themselves to God. Any will that people have without God's gracious intervention is overwhelmed by the influences of sin. Luther upheld the absolute sovereignty of God against human philosophies. God is really, really God after all. Although he knew this from his own experience, he was convinced of the truth from Scripture as we see, as we will be convinced, I believe, as we study God's Word, what God's Word has to say about mankind after Adam's fall. <clears throat> R.C. Sproul put it this way in, his, in a posting that he made on his ministry website. It is not by accident that Martin Luther considered the bondage of the will to be his most important book he saw in Erasmus a man who, despite his protests to the contrary, was a Pelagian in Catholic clothing. Luther saw that lurking beneath the controversy of merit and grace and faith and works was the issue of to what degree the human will is enslaved by sin and to what degree we are dependent upon grace for our liberation. Luther argued from the Bible that the flesh profits nothing and that this nothing is not a little something which is what Erasmus was saying. He's just a little something. The fourth event of history, and we'll get past history in just a moment, John Calvin versus Jacob Arminius at the Synod of Dort, 1619. Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564. He died young, 54 years old. His main antagonist, Arminius, was just four years old when Calvin died. Calvin lived contemporaneously with Martin Luther. And he had even written his, the first version of his monumental classic, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, before Luther died. But what Calvin did faithfully was to systematize in both Latin and French languages the faithful work of other giants of the Reformation. And I'm going to try to hurry through some of my notes. Some of you are familiar with what has been, become known as the five points of Calvinism. Calvin didn't know of any such formulation. Let me start there. Um, although a proper understanding of those five points can be found in his teaching. But what really occurred was that the Dutch Reformed Church and many other Protestant churches that joined them in response to something called the Five Articles of Remonstrance that were written by Arminius' followers. After Arminius died, they systematized what he had to say and these articles of remonstrance were uh, just caused uproar in the true Protestant church. And leaders of the pastors and teachers of the Protestant churches, both the Dutch Reformed Church, English Church, all came together at a place called Dort in, Dutch, in the Netherlands. And the decisions from that assembly at Dort are called the Canons of Dort, and they were written to respond to the Remonstrants and their five articles. 
Here's a summary of what Arminius taught. And it's still, this is very much, it became, what he taught is now known as Arminianism. And it's prominent as a system of religion uh, today. According to Arminius, faith, get this, and I have to, faith is a gift. No, faith is a gift. That's good. True. Given through the work of God's spirit when, see a condition coming in? When an individual does not resist prevenient grace. Okay. This kind of faith, the kind of faith conditioned as they just said it, is not only the foundation for justification, but also a condition for election. The basis of predestination was not God's unconditional choice, but his foresight of an individual's willingness not to resist grace and subsequent choices to remain in grace. God's predestinating decree was, Arminius argued, to save and to damn certain particular persons. This decree depends on the foreknowledge of God by which he has known from eternity which persons through his, his prevenient grace would believe. Can you see the subtle influences of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism creeping back in? Man is the deciding factor by not resisting God's prevenient grace given to all. Some have, have the power to resist. Everybody has the power to resist or to accept. Some, have, some resist and some accept. It's up to man. God's not really God. The result was an amazing document known as the Canons of Dort, published in 1619. I say amazing because of the fact those declarations stand the test of time as one more example of God's faithfulness to preserve the truths about God's salvation. The Canons of Dort repeatedly repeated precisely what the 16th century reformers taught. They were based on faithful exposition of Scripture, and the Synod condemned the remonstrance efforts to undermine the truths we're going to be studying. Stay tuned. Read the quote from Sproul on your own. It's, it summarizes this very well. The seminal thought of Pelagius was that people are basically good. God is not really God. Man can be the final determinant in his own salvation. The glorious truth is this. You and I don't have to rely on our puny selves for salvation. Thank God. God has gloriously given to his elect life and faith and all we will ever need to spend eternity reconciled to him. And that is all a product of his amazing grace, grace that saves from first to last. I'm out of time. Give me, give, me, give me a few more minutes, just several more minutes. What is this grace? First, let me say what it is not. It's not Calvinism. Now, before some of you who love Calvin, and I love Calvin, get up in arms. Let me quickly add, John Calvin is one of those giants of the church, a gift from God to teach the church. But these truths that Calvin eloquently and systematically affirmed about God's salvation were not his invention. I agree with teachers much more gifted than I am with the following statement. In Calvin's own lifetime, the willing acceptance of such a title, Calvinism, would have been seen as ridiculous at best, offensive at worst. John Calvin was far from the sole architect of Reformed theology, and he would have deplored the thought that any movement might bear his name. Calvin didn't even want his name to appear on his own gravestone. We don't know where he was buried. His request was to be buried in an unmarked pit along the common citizens, among the common citizens of Geneva. In addition, you should know that in the history of theology, Calvinism was really a derogatory descriptive. It was used, it, it was used not to speak against these truths that we're going to be talking about, but some other things that Calvin taught, and it was derogatory. It was only in the 20th century, really, that people started saying that it was used in a complimentary way. Calvinism, he would have blanched at the idea that anything that he did was called Calvinism. He systematized. What he did was systematized in the institutes of the Christian religion, the truths that all of the reformers had, uh, had taught. 
And the second thing, let's talk about flowers, tulips to be specific. The acrostic tulip was invented probably early in the 20th century to provide a memory device in the form of an acrostic that was supposed to stand for the descriptives of five important points of God's salvation. And these are important points, and we are going to cover them. Some writers, including some of the writers we've recommended you read, have used these descriptives and the acrostic they represent to stand for these five important points. But every one of the writers, and I've read a bunch of them now, not all of them by any means, but the ones I've read spend considerable time and numerous words explaining why these descriptives are not really very helpful, and in some instances, they give wrong impressions. Despite those potential pitfalls, we're, we're going to, like others, start with those descriptives and then learn why those descriptives can be less than helpful. In your notes, and you can go there at the end if you will, right, not right now, but you'll see what was supposed to be a schedule for this course. Uh, but don't hold us to the schedule. Uh, you will see tulip there along with few better and more accurate descriptives. Now, what's wrong with tulip? Now, have a little fun. I'm going to quickly end with this. Try to quickly end. Uh, from the book Proof, and part of the footnote that accompanies that text in Proof. First, the text. The trouble with the tulip is that some of the changes required to turn the five points into the acrostic tulip have nothing to do with the decisions made at Dort or with the theology of the Reformation. In notice footnote 25 we'll get to in a minute. Total depravity? That sounds more like a table, cable television series that Christians ought to avoid than a biblical description of human nature. What's more, it almost gives the impression that people are as evil as they can be, which no Reformed theology, theologian has ever claimed. And how about limited atonement? There's no mention of limited atonement in the decisions from Dort. Now notice, this is a very contemporary book. The book Proof was just written. Very new. They all have to go back to these monuments that I've, I know bored you with a little bit of history to see that God was faithful to preserve his truth. What the pastors at Dort declared was that the death of Jesus was, quote, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world and that this sacrifice was effective for everyone whom God had chosen. Now, look at the wonderful footnote 25, which addresses, and I, I got a chuckle out of this, maybe it's just me. A broad range of writers and theologians arrived at similar conclusions regarding tulips. See, for example, Greg Forster, The Joy of Calvinism. Forster proposes this alternative acrostic. One, wholly defiled, that's a W. Two, unconditional choice, a U. Three, personal salvation, that's a P. Four, supernatural transformation. And five, in faith persevering. This gives us the handy mnemonic or acrostic, whoopsie. Whoopsie. As in whoopsie, we just realized that Tulip is giving everyone heinously, heinously false ideas of what Calvinism is all about. Perhaps it's not as memorable as Tulip, but it has other virtues to make up for that. My only response to Mr. Forster, with all due respect, is that Calvin is turning over in his grave, wherever that, <laughs> wherever that might be. I'm going to skip over this last section. I shouldn't, but I will. Um, the problem, we, could, we can have a problem with this study, and it, it's the problem of pride. Let me give a little personal illustration. Uh, about 40 years ago, I was asked to do some legal work for a ministry that you have literally, some of you know ministries I might have represented, this is one you've never heard of, and you probably never will. The man who founded this ministry was an avowed Calvinist, and he was very proud of it. He had several theology degrees behind his name, pastored a small church, hosted a radio program that very few people listened to, and even fewer supported financially. He knew these great truths backwards and forwards and would be happy to debate and did debate anyone who wanted to debate with him about them. He was the epitome of a proud Calvinist. A Google search was done. I put some of this in your notes. Uh, Autocomplete feature, start it, you put in Google some words. Why are Calvinists blank, blank, blank? This was a Google search that was done by somebody at Christianity Today. And they came, the four top response, the fill in the blanks were, why are Calvinists so mean? Why are Calvinists so arrogant? Why are Calvinists so smug? Why are Calvinists so negative? 
That was what the Google search produced that, Google, that Christianity Today did. Now, we don't want to be guided, guided by Internet users' opinions, but they can easily reflect opinions about us if we don't avoid the sin of pride as we learn more about a system than we learn about God. These perceptions should not be true when we really apply the truths of God's grace to us in salvation. The opposite should result. Since we, all we have is what we've been given by a gracious God. Pastor Piper, actually, he, he wrote this in answer in his Desiring God thing before the Google search produced this in Christianity Today. I, he must have been prescient, knew what was going to happen. He said there's an attractive, he said, what's the trouble with Calvin? And that was answering that question. He said there's attract, an attractiveness about the doctrines of grace to some people in large matter because of their intellectual rigor. They are powerfully coherent doctrines and certain kinds of minds are drawn to that. And those kinds of minds tend to be argumentative. So the intellectual appeal of the system of Calvinism draws a certain kind of intellectual person and that type of person doesn't tend to be the most warm, fuzzy, and tender. Therefore, this type of person has a greater danger of being hostile, gruff, abrupt, gruff, abrupt, insensitive, or intellectualistic. I'll just confess that. I'm talking about himself. No, he is. It's a sad and terrible thing that that's the case. Some of this type aren't even Christians, I think. You can embrace a system of theology and not even be born again. I'm not going to read, read the quote from Greg Dutcher, which talks about this. There's nothing uglier than religious pride. Nothing. Next week, we're going to begin with mankind's only contribution to God's plan of salvation. And that truth, stated simply, is that all of us, without God's gracious intervention, are hopelessly and helplessly lost in bondage to sin, lacking anything whatsoever to commend us to God, the only, and when we fully understand that only contribution we have to bring, the rest of a biblical theology of salvation logically flows. The only disagreement I have, and it, you know, they're probably right and I'm probably wrong, but let me just tell you my think, thinking. This, the book, I'm, we re I really want you to read proof. They put this as the second point they deal with. They call it resurrecting grace. They're talking about what the tulip calls total depravity, and they put it second. Total depravity is a bad word, bad descriptive. They put it second. That's my only argument with them. I think they should put it first because everything else, if we fully understand how little we know and have within us to, to commend us to God, if we really understand that fully enough, the rest of these truths flow logically. Read that last quote, proof, uh, uh, you know, when I read that and when I really meditate on this truth, um, this sourpuss that I am can't help but radiate with joy, even though sometimes the 25%, I blame this on my mother. <laughs> the 25% of Swedish genes in me don't let my face know that I'm radiating with joy sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes they do, thank God. But to whet your appetite for that resource proof, read that quote right at the end of your notes. These guys are amazing writers. Montgomery and Jones, they are amazing writers. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in awe. Like I said, probably the best thing you could do, just read the book. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great truths. May we revel in the fact that we bring nothing to the table but that you've brought everything to the table that we need for godliness. We can't do any of this on our own, but we can because we're in Christ. Our motives are at best mixed, but you attribute to us the pure, pure righteousness of your son. May we celebrate like Luther did when we really understand that. And not be put off by the philosophies of man that try to tell us we're basically okay. We're not. But you are good and kind and gracious 
to have drawn us out of a cesspool and put us on the solid rock. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.